0: Please take a seat. And as you do that, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Acts in the New Testament. The book of Acts chapter 26 is where we've reached there. You'll find it printed on page five if you don't have a Bible with you. So let's read then. I'm going to read from Acts chapter 26. Read the whole chapter for us. Here is Paul again on trial and on trial for his life before Agrippa, a Jewish king. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O King, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. When we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. "'Delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you, "'to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, "'and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins "'and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. "'Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision.' But declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying to both small and great, saying nothing but what prophets and Moses said would come to pass. That the Christ must suffer and that by being the first, notice that, the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. But as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king, the Jewish king, knows about these things. And to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. This has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, Jewish King Agrippa, do you believe the Old Testament prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day, might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Amen. Bombs and earthquakes and cancer and suicide. War and disaster, plague, pestilence and pandemics. Terrorist attacks. Natural disasters, tragedy and trauma, heart disease and dementia. Not one of all these things increases the death rate. Nothing does. All those things do is simply affect the manner of death. We know this is true, don't we? One out of one person dies. We all do. We all die. I want to say today in this short time that we have together this morning, I want to say that Christian people, people who love the Lord Jesus Christ, we should do Remembrance Day differently. Because on a day like today, isn't it true, most people remember for a short time, for one day only, so that they can then go back to forgetting. One day to think about life. Yeah, that's okay. But now back to life, please. Nobody minds a solemn occasion now and again, so long as it's brief and passing. It's good to remember, but not too much of it. Except, of course, this year for all of us, death is everywhere. It's not just Remembrance Day that we think about death. Death has been in front of us all year long. And Christian people, people who love the Lord Jesus, Christian people We never stop being real about death and speaking about death. And do you know why? Because we have the only answer to death. The only answer that there is. Christian people are not morbid people by being real about death. We are real about it because we know the answer to it. Do you remember that description, the minister's job description? I gave it to you just a couple of weeks ago. I wonder what it would be like if it was engraved here. On the front uh, underneath me here if it was engraved on the front of the pulpit for everybody to look at maybe it should be here on the inside for me to look at every Sunday before I preach here's what somebody put a couple of weeks ago here's what I do as a minister I tell people they're going to die and then I tell them how to die so that they don't actually die there it is job description for life here we are on Remembrance Sunday together and in God's good kindness we have reached Acts chapter 26 wasn't planned for today here it is for us a wonderful chapter to look at this is the third time that we have read together about how Saul of Tarsus became Paul how Saul became a Christian how Saul became Paul because he met The risen Lord Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, raised from death to life again. The third time in the book. Now, when you get something twice in the Bible, as you're reading any Bible book, you get it twice. Sit up and take notice. But three times. Why is this the third time we've read Paul giving this account? We're going to come to that in just a moment. As we look at this story, I've put everything that I want to say today into one point and genuinely one point, okay? It's not, not an attempt to smuggle in an extra 10 points. Genuinely one point today. I have only one thing to say. Here is what this passage shows us. Never stop telling everyone that the tomb of Jesus the King is empty. If that's all you remember this morning. You take that away with you ringing in your ears. Never stop telling everybody that the tomb of Jesus the King is empty. All the different parts of this chapter coalesce. They all combine into that one beautiful point. Every single person on earth deserves to hear, needs to hear that the tomb of the world's true King does not have his bones lying in it. It is empty. And if you leave here today with just that, only that ringing in your ears, on a day like today when we think about death and as you move forward into the rest of this pandemic, however long it lasts, that truth ringing in your ears and deep down in your heart has the capacity to change the way we think about so much about ourselves and life all around us. Jesus' tomb is empty. And I want you to notice as we begin to look at this, I want you to notice who Paul is speaking to. Who is Paul giving this defense to? That's the key thing about it. What is the recurring phrase in verses 1 to 8? I I tried to emphasize it a little bit as we read it. Verses 1 to 8. Look at verse 2. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa. Why is it fortunate that it's before him? Because he's not a Roman ruler. He's a Jewish ruler. I'm going to make my defense today. It's fortunate that it's before you against all the accusations of the Jews. That's the key phrase in verses 1 to 8. Do you notice it? Verse 2, the Jews. Verse 3, you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Look at verse 6. I'm on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, Jewish fathers, to which are verse 7, our 12 Jewish tribes hope to attain. That's why you get verse 8. Why is it thought incredible by any of you, you Jewish people? Why did Jewish people find it incredible that God should raise the dead? You shouldn't find it incredible. Paul is defending himself here to people he shouldn't have had to defend himself to. Paul believes something that they should have believed. See it again in verse 6. I am on trial because of my hope in the promise, not, not made off in the distance in the corner, made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain. See what he's saying? I am accused of my hope in something God promised to do. And I'm accused of it by people who also have this hope. They should know better. Three times the word hope is used here. My hope in God's promise, which is the Jewish hope in God's promise, which means it is their hope too. Why, verse 8, is it thought incredible if I should believe something you should believe? Think think about what it's like with children all year long. Your mum and dad tell you on Christmas Day that Christmas is coming. When you get to christmas day there will be presents all year long. They're saying to you get to christmas day It's coming. It's coming and when you come downstairs, there will be presents under the tree They're telling you that in april and may as you're flicking through the argos catalogue No, I don't No one really does that anymore Do you but kids are wondering what they're going to get and mum and dad say it's coming. I promise christmas day And then on christmas day your brother or sister jump on your bed wake you up early and they say to you It's amazing. Come downstairs. You won't believe it. there's presents under the tree you say to yourself, no, that can't be nonsense. There's no, no such thing. It's not going to be presence under the tree. And as you're staggering out onto the landing, you meet your dad on the stairs. And dad says to you, why do you think it's incredible that something I said would happen has happened? Don't you believe me? That's what Paul is saying to these people. He's saying to them, friends, to us, you and me this morning, what is the great hope of the Bible? What have we been waiting for all along? What was the promise God made to our fathers? What is the hope, verse 7, that the 12 tribes of Israel are hoping for and longing for? What is it? I want to say this to you today, that if you belong to Jesus, the hope that they had is exactly the same hope and longing that you have this morning. I know that you're here with this in some way lodged in your heart, without even speaking to you yet today. I know you've brought this hope with you. The whole Bible has this coursing through its pages. It is a forward-looking book. The people of the Bible are always straining forward towards the future. We are longing for something. We can't wait for something to arrive. And 2020 has made it even more so for us. Some of you here today have had the kind of year... And experience the kind of loss this year that has made you ache for this hope in a whole new way. These memorials up here on the wall, names engraved on the front of the pulpit, the poppies that we wear today. Death is in front of us, in front of our very eyes. Oh, friends, the great hope of the Bible The great promise is that one day God will destroy death forever. One day all sorrow gone, all sickness gone, all death, all dying. God will wipe it from the table. The world will be new. The Jews were hoping for the resurrection of the dead. They were promised by God the destruction of death and... What is Paul saying has made him a Christian? What's converted him? Meeting a man who has been dead, raised from death. See, in verse 13, At midday, O King, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and all those who journeyed with me. I met Jesus, the man who was dead. What have we seen in Acts? We've just come across it, haven't we? Week after week, as Paul is on trial, what does he keep speaking about? The tomb of Jesus is empty. Jesus has been raised. Here he is telling everyone that the tomb of Jesus the King is empty. See, when you're on trial, particularly if you're on trial for your life, You want somebody defending you who is razor sharp in their logic, don't you? You don't want someone who hasn't read all the manuscripts, hasn't read the documents, doesn't know how to form a coherent argument. You need someone who can prove a point and win an argument. See the logic of Paul's position? You see what he's doing here? If you are a Jew who had read the Old Testament, you knew that God promised to raise the dead. That is our great hope. Why is it incredible if he's only gone and done it? Paul is saying. See, I want, I want you to listen to one Old Testament prophet, Isaiah chapter 25. Listen to the hope that filled the Old Testament. Look, look what Paul says to Agrippa in verse 27. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? It's what you do in a courtroom, isn't it? You point to the evidence. You've got it in front of you. Get the scroll out of gripper Do you believe this? He is a Jewish king. He knows the prophets. He, he should believe what they promised. Here's the hope of God's people. Listen to Isaiah. Isaiah 25. Simply one voice from the whole of the Old Testament. Here's what Isaiah said. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. A feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. See, the hope of the Old Testament is that one day God would invite us to a banquet. God will lay the table, rich food. But as we sit to eat, so God is going to sit to eat. What is God going to eat? Here's what Isaiah says. And as we sit... He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the shroud that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. Those beautiful words we read from the book of Revelation, do you know they come from Isaiah? They're the promise of the scriptures. The Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. The reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord we have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. I want to ask you this morning, what is your picture of God like? sometimes said, isn't it, that the first thing that pops into your mind when somebody says the word God is the main way that you conceive of him. Somebody gives you a blank piece of paper and a pencil and says, put at the top of it, this is my God. Now draw. Summarize it. Capture God in one picture. What, What would you draw? What would you choose? I hope you wouldn't draw a church building, either this building or any other building you've known and loved, I hope you wouldn't even draw a Bible. Maybe, maybe a cross, perhaps. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah says, if you ever get the chance to draw, this is my God, draw a banquet host draw wine on the table, make sure if your art is good enough, make that table stretch way off into the distance, out of the paper, far as the eye can see. For if you want to know what God is like, and if you want to, to know who he is, and how you should talk about him to others, this is him, this is what he is like. He hates death, and he loves life. He hates disgrace and shame. And he loves banquets. You know, for you and I to do this, to sit down with God and eat with him at his table forever in his kingdom. Like I said, as we were listening to Isaiah, it's not just that God has to give us something. He has to take something away from us, doesn't he? Death. The one great enemy, our final foe. In these great wars that we remember today. The bodies of the dead were so great in number, they were often wrapped in cloth, a makeshift coffin laid in the ground. We've seen it this past year, bodies wrapped in shrouds. And Isaiah says that shroud literally hangs over all the earth. He's imagining the whole world, all the nations covered in a shroud, the sheet of death, and then God arrives on the scene and he, you know, it's like when you're changing the bed, you pull the sheet off into a a big pile, pull it all towards you. God takes the whole sheet of death covering the earth, pulls it off and swallows it consumes it. It's as if he's saying God takes death into himself, overcomes it, overpowers it with his life, destroys it forever. The promise of the Bible is we will eat with God because God will eat death for us. He will swallow it for us, destroy it for us. So here is Paul, friends, standing, defending himself for his very life. Can you hear him preaching? You hear the drumbeat of the scriptures again and again as you and I sit here today with death filling our TV screens. If you watch the veterans gathering at the Cenotaph, our hearts break, don't we, as we hear God's promise of destroying death and we long for it with every fiber of our being. But we wonder, don't we, deep down, can it be true? For death is so final, so cold, so brutal can it really be true how would we know that death can be done away with what would it be like if god himself were to swallow death can we hear paul preaching as he says to the world and to every person on earth here is what it looks looks like the tomb of jesus of nazareth is empty One man laid in a cold, dark tomb, and God raised him. And there in that one man, there is how God took death down into himself, swallowed it, came out the other side with death consumed. The death of death in the death of Jesus as God raised him to life. And because of that, Jesus is not just a man, but king. King of the world. Look at verse 22. To this day, I've had the help that comes from God, so I stand here testifying both to small, to people who are nobodies, and to you, Agrippa, to great, to you, Bernice, in all your regal pomp and robes and splendor. I stand here saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer. Christ is not Jesus' surname, is it? It's his title. The, the royal one, the anointed one must suffer. The king of the world must suffer. And his resurrection from death proves he's the king. He's alive now in heaven. And because he is alive, death is finished. You know, friends, watching the election last night, I watched the, the, the first announcement of Joe Biden. Finally, it seems, crossing the line. And all the celebration that broke out across the streets of America... When you see images like that, what is it that people are longing for? They don't call him a king, do they? But they are longing for a king. Here is someone to save us, to put the world right. And we saw it, didn't we? 2008, when Barack Obama came to power, there was nothing like, it was almost like a coronation. At last, a man like this to save us. Eight years later, America was more divided and broken than it had ever been. And what is it like now? People long for a king, longing for a savior. Paul is saying, Jesus raised from death is the true king of the world. What does he bring? Verse 23, because he is the first to rise from the dead, he proclaims light both to our people and to Gentiles. Look at verse 18. I am now preaching so that they may turn from darkness to light. Oh friends, light is everything. Everything. A few years ago in our house, uh, with our four children, uh, when they were just a little bit litter, uh, a little bit smaller in our house, one of the parents, who shall remain nameless apart from the fact that it's the mother, uh, one, one of the parents was known in the middle of the night to hear a child crying in the darkness. And in the darkness of sleep, staggered out of bed and went to stroke the head of another child who was fast asleep saying to the child, there, there, don't worry. Only to hear a little voice from across the room. It's me, Mum. i I'm the one crying. W- what can you see without light? Nothing. We're stumbling around in the darkness. There is no darkness like death. Where is the light in the darkness of death? Only on the other side of it. Only if someone has conquered it. Think about life today for you and me. Is there any light in the world? How are you feeling as 2012 creaks slowly, all too slowly to an end? Some of us have melancholy personalities, don't we? We don't think there's much light ever in the world. Some of us are the opposite. We're sunny. Everything will be all right. But who is right? Which personality type should dominate? All over the world, there is more suffering to cope with and more suffering to live with than any of us can bear. So is there any light in the world? Paul is saying to us, isn't he? Isn't he preaching to us here? The only light that really counts, the best light, the light we all want is the light that comes from the other side of death the light that can break into our world because Jesus is alive. And because he is alive, all can be forgiven. There is a pathway out of sin and darkness to his side in the world to come. And it all comes from turning away from ourselves. See that? Repenting, turning to God who raises the dead. Brothers and sisters, I simply want to say today to you that everything Everything, absolutely everything in life hangs on the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Everything hangs on it. Look what Agrippa says to Paul, verse 28. In a short time, this short speech, short sermon, would you persuade me to be a Christian? What does Paul say, verse 29? It's not just you, Agrippa, I'm trying to persuade. It's everyone. Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me this day might become such as I am. Friends, never stop telling everyone that the tomb of Jesus is empty. Whether small or great, pauper or president, they need to know the tomb of Jesus is broken, broken open. This is not private truth today, not just for you and me. Let's gather ourselves in here and Gee each other up a little bit with fluffy religious thoughts. Let's block out reality for half an hour of religious sentimentality. No, this is objective truth for all. Jew, Gentile, male, female, gay, straight, young, old, Democrat, Republican. For everybody. The reason it is for everybody is that everybody dies. Everyone dies. Colossal scale or small scale, everyone dies. So everyone needs to know there is light in the darkness. There is life on the other side of the grave through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Friends, on Remembrance Sunday, the sheer scale of what we believe is so beautiful. Often on Remembrance Sunday, we usually close our service by singing Fred Kahn's hymn, God, as with silent hearts, we bring to mind. The beautiful thing about that hymn is that it has the words in it, lest we forget. That's what everybody says on Remembrance Day, isn't it? Lest we forget. But we sing, lest we forget the future of this earth. That's the difference the resurrection of Jesus makes. Here's the hymn. May we, impassioned by your living word, remember forward to a world restored. See, see what Paul says? Verse twenty three The Christ must suffer and by being the first to rise from the dead. That's why he says verse twenty six to Agrippa This has not been done in a corner. No, no. what has happened in the resurrection of Jesus is real, objective, physical fact. There was a real man in a real place at a real time who had a real physical body laid in a real tomb. There were real witnesses. There were real ways of falsifying this if it was all made up and no one was able to do it. And because it is real, physical, actual, objective truth, because it really happened... The entire future of the world is different. Jesus is not alone in his resurrection. He is the first to rise. And so we remember and remember forward. For as to him, so to us all. Jesus' resurrection shows us one day death will be destroyed forever. And the dead will rise There will be a resurrection of the just and the unjust. And there will be a world restored. You know, I wrestled all week with why is Paul's conversion story in Acts three times? You're probably not bothered. It's the sort of thing preachers wrestle with. I'm trying to work out why. what is the writer showing to us? Why is it here three times? And Kevin DeYoung, American pastor, he unlocked it for me. He didn't know he was unlocking it for me. He he unlocked it by asking this question. He said, here's the question for you and me. Can your life be understood apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Do, Do you as an individual make sense without the resurrection of Jesus? Because here's what he meant. He said, you cannot understand Paul without the resurrection of Jesus. Put Paul on a corner, put him on trial, get him backed into a corner, ask to account for his actions and his beliefs. And he just keeps talking about a man who used to be dead, who he believes is now alive again. I met a dead man on the way to Damascus living again. That's Paul. You want to understand him? Try and get your head around him. He's the guy who believes that dead people come back to life again. That's why his conversion story is here three times. The first time you get it in Acts chapter 9, it's the story of it actually happening. And then two more times, you get Paul telling people that it happened. The point of it is, give Paul an inch and he takes a resurrection mile. That's the point of it. He cannot stop speaking about it. You know, in our family, when we get together, I get together with my two brothers and friends who I grew up with in Northern Ireland get together usually at christmas that used to happen and it's the kind of evening i absolutely love and my poor wife sits there rolling her eyes all evening because it's the same old stories again and again and again and every time we tell them they get funnier more amazing to listen to and my poor wife thinks this is awful i've heard this a thousand times it wasn't funny the first time there are things about us aren't there that just keep coming out you cut us open, prod us, poke us. There are defining things that you cannot stop remembering, cannot stop saying, cannot stop sharing. This chapter says to you and me today, friends, can your life be understood without the resurrection of Jesus? Do people need to know what you believe about Jesus rising from the dead to make sense of you? Or is it possible somebody could know you for one year, two years, 20 years, and not know that you believe dead people live again? You you couldn't do it with Paul. It, It just spilled out. It came out. See, if tomorrow somebody was able to prove once and for all, okay, imagine you turn on your TV tomorrow morning and the election is no longer breaking news. The pandemic is not on the screen. What is front and center breaking news across the world is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ has been proven to be a hoax. Liberal scholars, conservative scholars, everybody agrees. Yep. These are the bones of Jesus of Nazareth. There, there is no doubt about it. Would your life collapse? Would everything you've staked your life on be over? If not, then you are probably not a Christian. But if your entire life would collapse, then you are like the Apostle Paul. You have married yourself to a truth, bound yourself to to something, this one incredible claim that God raises the dead. It is the very bedrock of our faith. There is no hope without it. If you're today just looking at this Christian faith, wondering what it's all about, somebody's brought you here, and you're wondering what the Christians believe, this is the very thing to test and to probe and to look at. See, Christian people, I want to put it like this: Christian people are a little bit—if you can imagine—going to visit a friend who has lost a close friend who's just died. Somebody has died in awful circumstances, and you go to visit your friend who's now grieving. And when you get to see them, your grieving friend says to you, "Don't worry, it's okay. My friend is alive." And you know you're there to help them, so you say to them. You know i I know I can understand you thinking that, but I'm sorry that they're dead, and the friend says again, "No, they're alive, and you think you know they must be thinking they're up in heaven somewhere, they're a star looking down at me, their spirit is here they're they're still alive, I can't accept that they're dead, all those sorts of things, and then it dawns on you. this person thinks the person who was dead is actually physically alive again we we think it's time for medical help, don't we? That doesn't happen in this world. That is what Christian people believe. That a man who lived at a particular point at a real time in history was really executed. His cold body lay in a tomb and it really revived. He really came back to life again from death. The tomb was broken open from the inside out. Brothers and sisters, if you believe that today, as I do, as the Apostle Paul does, as he says to us, as the whole Old Testament scriptures believe, if you believe that, never, ever be ashamed of it. Never stop telling people about it. Here's why you need to do that, friends, because sometimes sometimes that underlying bedrock to your faith, sometimes that will be the only comfort you have left in the world. In a world of death and dying, God raises the dead. Oh, friends, oh, the light in the darkness that God will one day raise the dead. And he will do it. We know he will do it because he has already done it. In Jesus.